Amen. Amen. Well, my name's Jeremy, uh, one of the elders here at uh, King's Cross. Grateful to be, be able to come and serve you this morning. Um, I hope everybody found Joel, tiny little book in the middle of the Bible. Um, but I absolutely love um, the Old Testament. I absolutely love the minor prophets. Um, and don't think about the minor prophets as a collection of 12 books. It's one book. Um, the length of the minor prophets, when they're all combined together, is about the same length of Isaiah and Ezekiel, the, the major prophets. And so whoever compiled them, put them together, put them together with purpose. Um, the first three books, Hosea, Joel, Amos, are speaking to the northern kingdom before it gets obliterated by the Assyrian army. Um, and then the attention turns to the southern kingdom and then future prophecies as you get to the later minor prophets. Um, and so briefly about Joel before we do get started, we know very little about him. He introduces himself in the first verse as Joel, the son of Pethuel. That's it. That's all we got. That is it. We don't know a definite time stamp for this book. We don't know kind of really anything about it. We know that Joel wrote it. He's the son of Pethuel, and he is speaking in a general terms about repentance. A couple other things about the prophets. Pastor Clint's been going through Exodus um, in the morning. And so the Exodus is the birth of the children of Israel. The people of Israel, they're pulled out of the land of Egypt, and they come to the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land that God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before. And so they grew to be a nation in the land of Egypt. They were removed from Egypt through the Exodus and the power of our great God. And then they came into the land of Egypt. And that's when we get the book of Joshua as they conquest the land and remove the peoples that are there. After Joshua, the people of Israel kind of wander for a little while through the book of Judges. And so the Judges rise and fall as they forgot to kick, you know, kick everybody out of the land. And so they fall into idolatry with them back and forth for a while until the kings rise up. And so the kings rise up, and this is the middle period, the high period for the people of Israel. King David rules greatly, mightily. His son Solomon does too. But once Solomon dies and the wisdom of Solomon dies, his two sons take the reins of the kingdom, and then it splits. And the nation of Israel is then divided into two halves, the northern kingdom, the ten tribes that are on the northern part, and then Judah in the southern part, and they're called the southern kingdom. And so it's in this latter part of the history of Israel that the prophets come into play. And so the minor prophets are scattered throughout this timeline of these kings. And Joel is most likely prophesying somewhere around the same time as Isaiah and King Hezekiah, who's one of the good kings. And so King Hezekiah is going to have to deal with the Assyrian army. First, it, it destroys the northern kingdom in 722. And a lot of times we forget that this is history. These are actual events. King Sennacherib was a real king. He ruled the Assyrian Empire, and he came and encamped against the northern kingdom and destroyed them, just wiped them out. And then about 19 years later, he came back and he tried to do the same thing to the southern kingdom. And it's in this time period that most likely this setting is happening. And so it's a real time period, real history is happening, and these are not fake or made up events, and it is into this that they're speaking. And the beauty of Joel is it is a very simple and clear message. Three chapters, three prophecies. They follow a kind of similar pattern. The first chapter, you open up, there's a prophecy of a destruction of locusts, and then there's a call to repentance. Second chapter, there's an army coming against the nation of Israel, and there's a call to repentance. And then there's a future promise of glory. The third chapter finds finally gets tired of just picking on Israel and just picks on everybody. God's going to judge everybody, period. And there's going to be a future glory forever. 
And so let's take a moment to play. And so our path is going to be clear. It's going to be heavy for a little while. Clint and I were talking about, we were supposed to preach this on Mother's Day and we thought, let's not. <laughs> let's not. But, but I, want, I want you to bear with me. It's not just heaviness for the sake of heaviness. It's heaviness so that when we come through repentance of our own sin, we do feel the glory and the restoration that our great God has for us. So bear with us as we move through the heaviness because we go from there to the heights of glory. And I don't want to lose us here, and I want us to get here. So let's take a moment. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the faithfulness of your men and women of old. We thank you for a man named Joel. God, we thank you that we don't know much about him because in our folly, we would worship the man and forget the message. And God, we thank you that there's men and women who went through life without their names or their histories being recognized, but they are written in the book of glory because they pointed people to eternity with Christ. And God, would that we see, we see correctly our own sin we see correctly who we are, and we respond correctly both to our sin and to the sin of others and to the sin of the culture and the nation around us. And in that response, restore us, O oh Lord. Restore us and remind us of the glory that we have to come. God, fill this room with your spirit. God, we love you and we praise your name. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, if you want a title um, for, for the sermon, Judgment or Glory, Who Will Be Saved? That's really what Joel's getting at. And so the first main point we have here is this. God has judged. He is judge, and he will judge. That's who he is. And our favorite verse in the entire Bible now, we, we got rid of John 3.16 because we didn't like that one. Our favorite verse now is, don't judge. Don't. Well, somebody's going to. So let's pay attention. Joel first reminds his people that God's hand has been against them. Chapter 1 of Joel is, a, is, is the prophet ex explanation of what is happening in this moment to the people. There's been an attack of locusts, very similar, eerily similar to one of the plagues that we de described with the locusts coming against the, the, the Egyptians. And so the locusts come in, they swarm, and when the locusts swarm, as Clint described a couple of months ago, they eat everything, everything. Everything. I think sometimes we think that's hyperbole. It's not. Everything. They just eat it. If it's living, green, or growing, they just eat it. And so the locusts come, and this attack of the locusts has affected everyone from the drunkard in the street to the priest in this temple. And so Joel 1 and verse 2, we pick it up here. It says this, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children let tell their children and their children to another generation. What the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. It's gone, guys. It's all gone. If you're a farmer, if you're somebody tilling the orchard, if you're out there trying to make your living growing things, guess what has just happened? The locusts ate your livelihood, and not just your livelihood, not just the money by which you're going to make your living. They just ate the future food for your family 
and the families around you. In an agrarian society, this is devastating. Devastating. It affected everybody. It got so bad, it got so bad, the drunkard had no wine. I mean, take a look down. One of the things about Joel is Joel's a great writer. He's a brilliant writer, and he's almost comedic in his, in his nastiness sometimes. He is, he's pointing out the fact, look, God has told them not to be drunk, but it is now so bad that, the, that God's wrath on these people, he's not even left any wine for the drunkard to have, right? And so we pick it up in verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep. And wail, all of you drinkers of wine, because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it is the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. Guys, this also, it's not hyperbole. This is what locusts do. They want to eat every living thing, and the swarm comes in, and it's stripped bare. And the drunkard has no wine. Not only that, even the priest has no grain or oil to even offer sacrifices to the Lord. Verse 8 continues, Lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth. For the bridegroom of her youth, the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn. The ministers of the Lord. The fields are destroyed. The ground mourns because the grain is destroyed. The wine dries up and the oil languishes. Even the priests ministering the temple, they no longer have the grain for the wave offerings. They no longer have the oil for incense. They no longer have these things. They're taken from them. They're taken. It's gone. The farmer has nothing to till, and the keeper of the orchard has no fruit on the vine. It continues in verse 11. Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm, and apple. All the trees of the field are dried up, and gladness dries up from the children of man. I know. It's, I mean, it's not easy to read. But guys, this is what happened. I mean, the swarms of the locusts came in, and everyone from the drunkard to the priest to the farmers to those working in the orchards, it's gone. It's gone so much that even the gladness of man has dried up. But here's what's truly, truly sad the people experience this but they don't even recognize the hand of the Lord in it. The prophet has to remind them this, what is happening right now, this is the hand of the Lord. This is his judgment on us. In verse um, 15 and 16, Joel says this, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty it comes, it is not it is not, is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. It's as if Joel is begging the people to take a look, to recognize the hand of God. And the day of the Lord, it's, it's, it's used throughout the Bible, throughout Israel's scriptures. And the day of the Lord, most of the times they ascribed it to some far off day or at least some future day that's not going to affect them. It's the day of the Lord is coming. But Joel turns it around and says, no, this is the day of the Lord. These locusts have come. This is the day of the Lord. Hey guys, I mean, we might shake our heads and we think, wow, how did they miss it? Well, what would we ascribe this to? Mother Nature. 
right? Mother Nature sends the hurricanes against the coast. Well, who is Mother Nature? Last I checked, the one that controlled the nature was Almighty God. We can watch our weather app to see when and it might rain, but guess who controls it? God does. We are so quick to look around and ascribe the accidents of this world to Mother Nature, to just the whimsical of, of the nothing. How much have we been affected? No, God is in control of everything. The sun shines today. Why? Because God did. You know? And I mean, it's like if you're a father, I loved it when my kids were little. I can't do it now because they're as big as me, right? But when they were little, you could take them, you could toss them in the air, and they would just laugh. How many times did they want that to happen? Until you were tired, right? Until you were tired. And who got bored of it? You did. And so Chesterton, in his great book, Orthodoxy, he's got a chapter called The Ethics of Elfland, in which he looks and he says, you know, it's not the child that loses its wonder at the world. It's the adult that grows up and yawns when he's drinking a cup of coffee watching the sunrise. Maybe God, with all joy in his heart, is much more like a child and says to the son, do it again. Do it again. This isn't an accident. No mother of nature caused the locust to destroy the grain. God did. And he did it against his people, the people of Israel. This was a present reminder that God has been judging them, and they didn't get it. And so Joel also reminds the people, not only that God has judged them, but God is the judge. We continue, as, as we read this morning in chapter 2, there's coming a great army that God is raising up. A great army, not a figurative army like the locusts, but a great real army. And most likely, this is the army of the Syrians. In Joel 1 and 2, what we see is the day of the Lord is here, but it's also coming. Blow a trumpet in Zion, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, like blackness there is spread upon the mountains, a great and powerful people. Their like has never been before, nor will be again after them through all the years of the generations. There is an army coming and encamped. And if we're right with the Assyrians, it is the literal Assyrian army that has already wiped out the northern kingdom and is coming against the southern kingdom, right? And so he describes these in Joel's 2, 7 through 10. Like warriors they charge, like soldiers they scale the wall. They march each in his own way. They do not swerve from their paths. They do not jostle one another. Each marches in his path. They burst through the windows and they are not halted. They leap upon the cities. They run upon the walls. They climb into the houses. They enter through the window like a thief. The earth quakes before them. The heavens tremble. The sun and the moon are darkened and the stars withdraw their shining. This isn't good. And again, lest we forget that, that this is not just a figurative language, it, the entire northern kingdom, and not only that, all the northern countries, towns, the little civilizations and the little kingdoms that were there, guess what the Assyrians did? Destroyed them. Gone. 
You could either pay homage to the king and serve him and be a part of his empire, or you're gone. Those are your options. That's literally it. The point is, there is coming an army. And this army is great and mighty. And I don't want us to miss this next point. Whose army is this? Once again, once again, the kings of the earth, the kings of the earth rage, thinking that they've placed themselves as rulers. Look at verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army. For his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Who has put into place every ruler of every kingdom in the history of the world? The Lord has for his purpose. And he stands at the head of this army bringing against his people to judge them. And that's heavy indeed. It's heavy indeed. This day of the Lord is a very near future where the people will be looking for a direct fulfillment. This is judgment coming from the Lord. We need to stop and pause for a second and ask the question, why? Why is this happening? I thought God loves his people. I thought he nurtures his people. So why is he bringing judgment against his people? It's a great question. And for that, we need to go back a little bit to Moses. Before Moses died, he gathered all of Israel together. And read the book of Deuteronomy. It's the book of Deuteronomy. Three great sermons from Moses. It's almost like he's preaching for his life. He's like, I'm trying to get everything out to the people of Israel before the Lord takes them home. And so in Deuteronomy, he's speaking to the people of Israel, and he warns them of two things. He warns them to obey, and he warns them not to commit idolatry. In chapter 4, Moses says, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching, and do them that you may live. And go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, your God, that the, Lord the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Obey. Obey. He wants the people of Israel to obey. And he continues in chapter 4, verses 15 through 19. He says, watch yourselves carefully. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourself in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish in the water under the earth, and beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven and when you see the sun and the moon and stars and all the host of heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them beware. Moses is pleading with the people of Israel, do not disobey. Obey the commandments of the Lord. And secondly, make no carved image. No beast of the air, no beast of the fields, no fish, no nothing. Don't even look up at the sun and moon and bow down to them. Because these are what the people worshiped around them. Well, what did the people do? That's the question. We have the warning. But how did the people respond? How did they act through the history? Well, we go to 2 Kings chapter 17, and it says this, The Israelites sinned against the Lord their God who had brought them out of Egypt and under the power of Pharaoh the king of Egypt. 
They worshiped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones and Asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. At every high place, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that aroused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all the prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways. Observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I command your ancestors to obey and that I delivered you through my servants, the prophets. But verse 16 says this, they forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. They bound down to all the starry hosts and they worshiped Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sought omens and sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. The people of God secretly sinned, openly sinned, set up Asherah poles, worshiped idols on the high places and in the valleys. They bowed down to the stars. They cast two calves and worshiped them. They worshiped Baal. They took their little ones and cast them into the fire. Do we think we're better? That's the question for us. Moses also warned the people what would happen, and this is very instructive. This is coming probably 700-ish years before Joel's writing, maybe, maybe more. But Moses warns the people, if you fall away, if you stop obeying, and if you worship idols, this is what will happen. In Deuteronomy 28, he says this, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all his commands and decrees I am giving you today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or gather grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil because the olives will drop off. You will have sons and daughters, but you will not keep them because they will go into captivity. Swarms of locusts will overtake all of your trees and the crops of your lands. That's what Moses said hundreds of years before Joel. The prophet Joel is merely looking around at a nation that has seen the swarms of locusts come and devour everything. The prophet Joel is merely remembering what God had spoken through Moses, and he's reminding the people, this is the hand of God. He continues, Moses does, in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will bring a nation against you from far away from the ends of the earth like an eagle swooping down, a nation whose language you will not understand, a fierce nation without respect for old or pity for the young. They will devour the young of your livestock and the crops of your land until you are destroyed. They will leave you no grain, new wine or olive oil, nor any calves of your herds or lambs of your flock until you are ruined. They will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land until the high fortified walls in which you trust fall down. They will besiege all the cities throughout the land your God is giving you. 
the prophet Joel hears from the Lord and sees the nation that God is bringing against them. Just as Moses had warned. Almost word for word. Joel is one of the prophets who understands the sovereignty of God more than probably anyone. God is in control, has been in control, and always will be in control. And his commands when spoken will be obeyed or there will come judgment. And the people of Israel are feeling that and living it out. God has judged and is judged. We have to ask another question now. How in the world, and Habakkuk asks asks this question later, how in the world can you raise up an army like the Assyrians who are more wicked than the people they're coming against and not judge them? It's a great question. Well, Joel warns us that one day God will judge everyone. All will be judged. So prophecy, if we come back to it, has a couple of layers to it. There's almost always some local specific thing that the prophet sees and is warning against, locust. There's often some very near future thing that the prophet sees that is about to happen, armies coming against the people of Israel. And then the prophets often are given a vision by God to see farther into the future of what God's glory is going to bring about. And this is what chapter 3 brings us to. So we see chapter 3, verses 9 through 15. Proclaim this among the nations... Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations." Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in and tread, for the vine press is full. The vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. Love this one. The nations weren't given an invitation. They were summoned. God said, come, and the nations came. And they come to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now, this is, this is where Joel's really, really beautiful. Jehoshaphat was the name of one of the really good kings of Israel. It's not an actual valley anywhere. The word Jehoshaphat means God has judged. So God calls all the nations to the valley of God has judged. That's where they're getting called to come to. The valley of God has judged is where God will make the decision about the nations. And God is judging all of them. Immediately, I hope our thoughts jump directly to Revelation. Because John sees this same kind of vision come through. In Revelation 20, 11 through 13, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that that were in it, and the Death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. There will be a judgment for everyone who has ever lived in this life. There will be. 
There will be. Friends, I know this has been heavy for a while. It's been heavy to prepare, right? But I want to pastorally just stop and unpack it for, for a minute. Um, God is holy and cannot stand to look on the wickedness of this world. When we look on it, we're rightly grieved in our hearts. But when God looks on it, he doesn't have the sin baggage we do. We look on it with clouded eyes. So Christian, church of God, Joel warns us in stark terms that there is consequence for actions. I understand we live by grace. I'm fully aware of that. I'm grateful for it. But there is consequence for actions. And so there is consequence for sin in our lives. So let's take a moment before we begin the movement towards restoration and glory, because I want to get there as bad as you do. I do. And examine our lives. Don't let the day of judgment be the first time your life is examined. Don't. Let it be the day you stand before our great God covered by the blood of Christ. He was judged for us. Let that be the examination. Non-Christian friend, we, we say a lot of times that this is a safe place to be. We want you here. We want you to hear the things of God. We want you to seek our Lord. And I know you're sitting there thinking, great, I showed up on the day where it's just a good old hellfire and brimstone. Old Testament, God is judgment. Friend, I love you and our church loves you. And I, I can't in good conscience let you continue to identify yourself with things that are abhorrent to God without pointing them out. Not because I want you to feel bad, not because I want your identity hurt, I want your soul to be restored. I want you to see your sin for what it is. And sin's not a meaningless word. I know that in our culture today, we try to identify ourselves by many different things, and many of those things are abhorrent to God. And you say, well, you can't attack my identity. I'm not attacking. I am pointing out the obvious, that some of these things God hates. I don't, when my children were little, I told Job I was going to tell this story. When my children were little, you know, you tell your kids, don't touch fire, don't touch things that are hot. Why? Because you want to rob them of joy? Darn it, Dad, I want to touch the hot thing. <laughs> Don't. And so one day, little Job, he was, he was tiny at the time, two or three. He was out in the back, and we had a burn pile out in the back. It was burned down the day before, and it was just a small little thing covered in white ash. He thought it was just a sand pit. Stuck his foot in it. Oh, yeah. He remembers it to this day. Agony, I mean, screaming, got him to the hospital. Everything's fine. It's not, you know, no, no scars, no lasting physical damage, but lasting mental. He knows it. Non-Christian friend, you may think right now it's unsafe because your heart is being pricked. It's, it's not unsafe. The fire is unsafe. I want your soul to hear the words of God. And what is our response to this? This is where the beautiful thing is. What is the response to reprimand? Well, guys, this is our next point. Re repentance is the response to reprimand. 
Repentance is the response. What happens after the locusts, all right? Joel chapter one, once again, after the locusts come and they're eating everything, and Joel says this in chapter 13, put on sackcloth and lament, O priest. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in and pass the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land and the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. What is the response? It is to gather the elders. It is to call out to the land, call out to the assembly a fast to return to the Lord, to weep and to wail and to be broken over the sin. He continues, what happens after the army and the prophecy of the army? Verse 12 in chapter two. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will return and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, Call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? couple of thoughts here, guys. The heart posture of the people is one of broken humbleness. It's one of broken humbleness. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Weep and mourn over the sun, over the sin and the state of the nation. Return to the Lord with all your hearts. Guys, what is our heart response to our sin, to the sins of our neighbors, to those that sinned against us? What is the heart response to the sins of the nation? Is it broken humbleness and a return to the Lord, a running back to him? And guys, look at the importance of the immediacy of it. Who is called to this assembly? The elders, all the way down to the children, even the nursing infants, they're called. What about the bride and the groom that just got married? No, run back to the Lord. This is so important. Forsake everything and run back to the Lord. Repent and turn, everyone. And then the passionate pleading of the priests. I love it. Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. The priests come back and are just broken, pleading with the Lord, asking him to remember again his people. The heartfelt response to God's judgment, to his reprimand, is repentance, to see the sin for all its heaviness, all its ugliness, and run back to the Lord, to plead with him, to come again into his presence and say, God, God, remember your people. Christian, church, when we hear of the continued wickedness around us, what is our response? How many of us are quick to pick up our keyboards and hammer out and spew the anger that the world spews at us right back at him? 
How many of us, when someone sins against us, our temper gets the better of us and we just lash out in anger, try to get some sort of vengeance? Husbands, what's your response to your wives? Wives, what's your response to your husband? The response should be brokenness and a pleading with the Lord, a grieving over sin. Non-Christian friend, here is real safety. This is real safety. Recognizing your sin for what it is, a breach against an almighty and holy God. And the one place that you need to run is back to him. Run as fast as you can back to him. Because why? Oh, I love the character of God and how the prophet describes the character of God. See, this is what we miss in the Old Testament, right? We hear all the judgment because God has to judge because he's holy. But why do we run back to God? Because it says this, he is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, slow to anger. Now, how many years from Moses to Joel? Hundreds, hundreds of years. Now, I know that most of us don't read history and don't have a grasp of history. How long has America been a nation? 250, 270? We haven't even touched the surface of how long God will wait before his anger turns to judgment. He is slow to anger. He is gracious and merciful, and he is full of steadfast love. This is the character of the God you run to full of steadfast love, slow to anger, abounding in mercy and graciousness, run to him. And guys, we come now to our third point. I told you we'd get there. God mercifully restores. He does. He mercifully restores. God hears the repentance of the people and restores. In Joel 2, 18 through 27, then, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will make, uh, no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. And the stench and the smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. The threshing floor shall shall be full of grain. The vat shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else and my people shall never again be put to shame. God is merciful, and God restores. And God doesn't, just, just like it wasn't figurative judgment, this isn't figurative restoration. God restores. He gives them again grain and oil. He gives them again wine. He again gives them food, things good to eat. God loves, and he restores. And lest, again, we think that this is some just figurative language. Let's go back to Sennacherib, our king in Assyria. He literally did come and besiege 
the people of Israel, the southern kingdom. Hezekiah was king at the time, and Hezekiah receives a message from the army of the, the leader of uh, the Assyrians, and it mocks the Lord, and they hem in Jerusalem all around, and the city is surrounded. And so Hezekiah rinses his clothes, repents, turns back to the Lord, flees to the temple, and then he sends messengers to Isaiah, the prophet at the time. And Isaiah sends back to them, and he says, we heard your cry. We saw your repentance, Hezekiah. And Isaiah says this, he, namely the king of Assyria, will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way that he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and the sake of, my, of David, my servant. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up the next morning, there were all dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew and returned to Nineveh and stayed there. God fights for his people. God fights for his people. God restored his people. Hey, guys, what's hilarious is this is actually recorded in secular history. It's not just the history of the Bible. King Sennacherib, in his own words, says he had surrounded Jerusalem and hemmed them all in and left nowhere for the king to go. Now, Sennacherib doesn't record a whole lot about the loss, but he did go back to, to, to Nineveh, you know. And, and then the historians, they're, they're actually funny in how they describe it. You know, some say that there was a horde of mice that came in and ate all the bowstrings, and then that caused the army to flee, you know. Some say there was a, a bubonic plague of some kind that came in and wiped out, you know, thousands in the army. Uh, again, what do, we, what do we ascribe acts of God to? Anything else. I mean, anything else. Mice, bubonic plague. No, God did it. Angel of the Lord came in and uh, the Assyrians left. They really did leave. And King Sennacherib really did go back to Nineveh and really did get killed by his own sons. That's what happened to him. That's what the God does. God restores his people, but he doesn't just get rid of the army. Here's the beauty. God only did God defend his people, but he says this, Hezekiah, here's the sign for you. This year, you will eat what grows by itself. Next year, you'll eat what springs from that. But in the third year, sow and reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Once more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant and out of Mount Zion, a band of survivors. Oh, I'm going to replenish. I'm going to replenish you. God restores his people. But it isn't just a partial restoration. It's not just for now. Because here comes the really good stuff. Joel 2, 29 through 32 says this, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escaped, as the Lord has said, and among the survivors will those whom the Lord calls. Yeah. All right, now this is good. This is real good, but it gets a whole lot better because what happened in the book of Acts 
In Acts, in the book of Acts, remember Jesus ascends into heaven and the disciples do disciple things. They go into the upper room and they hide again. It's just what they're good at, right? But then the spirit of God came on these men. They walked out of that room in Pentecost and they began proclaiming the gospel of Christ in the tongues of all the nations around them. And Jesus' name was proclaimed. And guess what the people said? Oh man, these guys is drunk right? Well, guess what Peter does? Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I said. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Bothers me that that's the only reason, right? (laughs) No, no, This was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. uh, Paul, Peter is saying in this moment, the words of Joel, the prophet were fulfilled. The spirit of God descended on the people and God's presence dwells now forever with his people. And guess who is saved? Those who call on the name of the Lord. And Peter goes on to proclaim the name of Jesus and him crucified. Jesus of Nazareth, whom you put to death, he was raised from the grave. Friends, especially non-Christian friends, I want you to hear this. Please hear this. Here is the answer for the guilt you felt. There is a name, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, who came down and he came down, he lived a perfect life, he died a death on a cross and he was raised from the dead. His blood covers our guilt. Christians rejoice. Rejoice that the judgment of God was placed on Christ our Savior and we now stand under that perfect in him. That is our inheritance. We have his glory given to us, and we will one day see him face to face, face to face, non-Christian friend, cry out to him. Cry out to him. In the name of the Lord, you shall be saved. And there's one more promise, and we'll end with this. Very simple. God will bring his people to final glory. In Joel, it says, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, And the heavens and the earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people, a stronghold to the people of Israel. So you know that I am the Lord your God who dwells in Zion, my holy mountain, and Jerusalem shall be holy, and strangers shall never again pass through it. And in that city, the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord and water the valley. But Judah shall be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem to all generations. Once again, I want you to recall and think in your mind the words of Revelation and that final promise we have. In Revelation 22, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves in the tree for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse 
The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and its servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. Friends, that's our hope. We have to have the judgment because we have to know our sin. But that's not where we stay. A merciful God restores, and he does so through the blood of his Christ. And we have the promise of future glory forever. Friends, pray with me.